Our text this morning is Romans chapter 5, verse 16, but let's read this context again, starting in verse 12. Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation, Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who gives us understanding in your word. And Lord, not only understanding intellectually, but transformation of life from our hearts. Father, we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. Lead us into the pastures of your word that we might feed on them, that we might Lie down and be satisfied in you alone. Father, thank you for your work here this morning, your people, whom you have called out of darkness into the marvelous light of your Son, Jesus. Father, lead us forth by your word. Thank you for those who are not here this morning, Lord, who are sick and struggling. Please be with them. Strengthen their faith. Help them to look to Christ and to live in the joy of the Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we have been taking some bite-sized chunks as we go through this section of Romans, um, which at first seems like a departure from what had come before it in the first 11 verses. Um, But really, as we look at it, we see that it is very much connected. Through this central idea, the work of one can affect the many. The work of one affects the many. It is because of the work of Jesus Christ that we, the ungodly, the sinners, are saved, are justified. His work, the work of one, affected and affects all of us. And so it is in that spirit that I believe Paul writes this section, now comparing the work of the two heads of humanity that God has ordained. And there has only ever been two, and there only ever will be two. That is Adam, the first man, and Jesus Christ, the second man, who is also called the last Adam. 
And we've seen that Adam and Christ are both heads. They're both representatives before God for a people, a body whom they represent. Adam represents all of those who are earthborn, natural, if you will. We all descend from Adam, every one of us. Jesus Christ is the exception. He does not come directly from Adam. He was conceived supernaturally by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so he stands as a separate head of humanity, one who was born sinless, one who lived a life of perfect obedience and sinlessness. And he represents the new humanity, those who were born of heaven from above to God the Father. And we looked at this idea of imputation. What happens to the head happens to the body. And so when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him. That idea of imputation, what is counted to the body as a result of what the one has done that represents the body. And so what is true of Adam is that he has brought sin into the world of mankind. And death as a result has spread to all men. But Jesus Christ has brought justification and life in stark contrast to the work of Adam. And so we have been looking at, uh, first we looked at verses 12 through 14 as our first section. And we saw that verse 13 and 14 really are the explanation, the parenthetical comment that Paul makes to the end of verse 12, because all sinned. And we know all sinned because everyone dies who comes into the world. Death is the marker, is the proof that all are born sinners, constituted sinners from the time of Adam's sin. And so 13 and 14 explain how it is that we sinned in Adam and that sin brings death even before Moses brought the law into the world. Then we look at verses 15 through 17, and that really, I would argue, is the second parenthetical comment that Paul is making to explain the end of verse 14, where he says that Adam is a type of him who was to come. That is to say that Adam is a type, a figure, a shadow of Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And so 15, 16, and 17 are explanations of how Adam is just a type. He's not an exact representation. He's a similar figure. The similarities are, as we discussed, headship and imputation. He is the head of humanity, just like Christ is. What happened in Adam happens to all who are under him. Those are the similarities, but there are more differences. And those contrasts are really what Paul seeks to highlight here in verses 15, 16, and 17. So last week, we focused on verse 15. And the contrast that Paul made was between what he calls the free gift, which is a reference to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 17. The righteousness of Christ is compared with the offense, with the sin, the transgression of Adam. And we saw three points of how the righteousness of Christ as a gift is far greater, superior to the work, the offense of Adam. We saw firstly that it is, the gift is far greater in quality. 
the work that Christ did was a work of righteousness. So inherently, his work was a good work. Whereas the sin of Adam was inherently a sinful work. It was an evil work, a bad work. And so the quality of the work is clearly the first contrast. One man worked what is right in the sight of the Lord. The other worked what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Secondly, we saw that the works differ in quantity. In quantity, that Christ's work is a lifetime of perfect obedience, whereas Adam's work was a single offense. And so Christ's work far excels Adam's in quantity. And then thirdly, we saw that the work of Christ, this gift of Jesus' righteousness, far exceeds Adam's offense in its effect. In its effect, that is to say that the work of Adam brought death But the work of Christ brings life, and life abundantly. And so the effect is far greater. Life in the one case, death in the other case. Today, we're going to look at verse 16. And in verse 16, Paul makes a second comparison, a second point of contrast for the gift of righteousness. And this contrast, let's look at together in verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. The ESV, I think, puts it well here. You know, it's, it's interesting. Different versions have their strengths at different points in time in the Scripture. Um, we always try and look, we always look at the Greek and the, the understanding that is really there in the, in the original language to see which translation aligns better at this particular point in time. And here the ESV, ESV does great. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. It's not like the result. What is it that came through the one who sinned? Or what is the result of the one man's sin is the question. And Paul answers it in the next phrase in verse 16. He says, For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came to many of which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So the judgment The judgment that resulted, excuse me, the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. You might ask, Paul, are you talking about the judgment or the condemnation? Which is it that resulted from Adam's sin? There is a slight distinction between judgment and condemnation, and it's this. Judgment, the word judgment, krima in Greek, it is from the word krino, to judge, to determine by separating one thing from another. To pick out, if you will, one thing and not something else. That is the essence of the word judgment. To make a selection. And this language is forensic language. That is to say, it is the language of a courtroom. Which shouldn't be a surprise to us because Romans chapters 3, 4, and 5 all have as their central theme. And you could argue for the whole book, really. The central theme is justification by faith alone through Christ alone. So justification is a legal forensic term that we've been looking at, and here Paul is bringing in forensic language again. This time the word judgment, this separation of one thing. So it is the sentence of the judge, his selection of what is right as over against what is wrong. It is to make a verdict, to separate the true from the false, and that could be good or bad. Judgment is neutral in that sense. But the judgment that is here pronounced is one of condemnation. Condemnation. 
That word is katakrima. He adds the prefix kata in Greek, which is the preposition against. So to judge against someone is a condemnation. It is a judgment of condemnation, we could say, that results from what Adam did in his sin. It's a judgment of condemnation. So here's the comparison. The gift of Christ's righteousness is not like the judgment of condemnation. In other words, the gift is not like the judge's verdict of guilt for Adam's one offense. In verse 15, the comparison is this. The gift is not like the offense. But here in 16, the comparison is the gift is not like the result of the offense. The result of the offense. And you say, well, what's the comparison that you're making, Paul? It's this. And this is the first point for today. There's just two points. The first point is this. The application of the gift is far greater compared with God's righteous judgment. The application of the gift is far greater compared with God's righteous judgment. God's judgment, in other words, applies to just one offense. That's what the text says. One offense drew the judgment of God. But Christ's righteousness applies to many offenses. Many offenses. In other words, it only took one offense, Adam's, to trigger the judgment and the condemnation of God upon everyone who is under Adam as head. But the righteousness of Jesus applies to all the sins of all his people of all time, a far greater work. Christ's gift has a much wider application than the judgment of God is what Paul is saying here. You could also think about it this way. The judgment of God is narrow in this sense. It applies to just one offense. It's triggered by just one offense. But the gracious gift of Christ is broad. It applies to many offenses. Now, as you think about that, do you ask this question to yourself? Why is God's judgment drawn from just one offense? I mean, that seems harsh. Does the judgment of God really seem to fit the crime? I mean, should God punish not just Adam, but all his posterity with death, condemnation for Adam's one sin? And if you ask that question, it shows that you don't understand the holiness of God or his justice or the seriousness of sin. You see, there is one attribute of God that he exalts before or above all other attributes of God. He exalts it to the superlative position, that is to say, the highest degree, and that is his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's his holiness that's exalted to the superlative position. Habakkuk, the prophet, says, He is of purer eyes than to behold evil. He cannot even look upon wickedness, which is sin. Not even one sin. The scripture describes the Lord as a consuming fire who burns against all sin and sinners. This is not just an irritation to the Lord, sin. This is what incites his wrath. Not in a capricious way, but in a measured, controlled, definitive way. God hates sin. It's a high offense to the Lord because it is a spirit of rebellion against him. It's a spirit of defiance and disobedience from the creature who was created to worship and adore 
and show loyalty to the Lord. When sin entered the world through Adam's offense, the creature started worshiping himself rather than the creator. At that point, he turned away from God. He defected, if you will, from his God-given purpose of worship and service, and instead he started following the dictates of his own evil heart. He became an enemy of God, and God became an enemy of every sinful man. You see, man does not love God by nature. He's actually at war with him. And he proves it every day. You say, how? Because he wants to live for his own glory more than he wants to live for God's glory, for his kingdom, for his righteousness. That is the essence of sin, brothers and sisters. That is what it means to miss the mark, that term sin, that that archery term of missing the bullseye. It means to miss the mark of God's perfect standard, which is holiness, righteousness. And it's highly offensive to God, even in the form of one offense. That's why the one offense of Adam brings the judgment of condemnation. His holiness demands it. When Adam sinned, you know, the just thing for God to do would have been to wipe him and Eve out before they had a chance to reproduce. Just wipe out mankind and start over. God was clear, wasn't he? The penalty for their disobedience? You may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you do, you will surely die. They had the command of God and they broke it with knowledge. And so God brought death upon them. First, a spiritual death, a separation. And you see that at the end of, at the end of Genesis chapter 3 when he cast them out of the garden. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, this is God's perspective on sin that he wants us to understand. Sin in any form will be punished by God, and it must be punished to defend his justice, his righteousness, and his goodness as a good judge. But sinful man does not view sin as God views it. This is where the disparity happens. God has a very clear, unwavering view of sin, We have often a very different view of our own sin, don't we? Sinful man tends to minimize sin. He downplays it. He tries to sweep it under the rug, if you will, and ignore it, pretend it's not there. He justifies his sin by comparing himself with other people on a horizontal plane. He looks at others and he says, I'm not as bad as that person. I have some redeeming qualities. I may not be the best of the line of people, but I'm certainly not the worst And they think that that is somehow okay in the eyes of the Lord. Today we refer to sins as mistakes. We call sin errors. We call sin issues that we just need to work through. And that's not just happening in the world, is it? It's happening in the church, sadly. But this is not anything new. You read Jeremiah's account in his day, about 600 years before Christ. And the religious leaders of Israel, the prophets and the priests, were doing exactly the same thing. The scripture says that they were all given to covetousness. And all of them dealt falsely. Everyone. The the religious leaders included. The Lord said through Jeremiah in chapter 6, verse 14, this. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, 
saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, the people's sins were like open, festering wounds in the sight of the Lord. He was disgusted by them. And rather than the religious leaders calling sin what it is and calling the people to repent, they covered it over lightly. And they said, peace, when there is no peace. They tried to heal the wounds of sin in the people of Israel before the Lord by just saying, it's okay. It's like putting a band-aid on a wound that's deeply infected and saying, it's going to be okay. When the, the source, the cause of the infection has never been addressed, sin. And God is saying, there is no peace. Your wound remains in my sight. It's still open. It's still offensive to me. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment on you for this. I'm going to bring Babylon as my tool, and I'm going to use them to destroy you. Yet not completely. In his mercy, he saves a remnant. But he is going to bring judgment from a nation that is cruel, that does not spare the old and does not spare the young. It does not spare the women. It is going to destroy from every group of people in society. You see, while we forget, minimize, and ignore sin, God never forgets a single sin. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the Lord speaking through Paul, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? <laughs> Don't you realize that just because judgment hasn't come upon your head yet, it's not because God is not taking notice or because he's winking at your sin as if it's okay. This is a demonstration of the long-suffering of God toward you because he's trying to lead you to repentance. Don't misjudge the reality and say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Romans 2, chapter 2, verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, that means unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Your heart is so hard that you are insensitive to the fact that every sin that you commit is just being heaped up into a treasury of God's wrath, which at the last day of judgment will just be poured out on you as a deluge like the flood of Noah, but far worse because this is an eternal deluge that will never end. What a disparity! In the difference between God's view of sin and our view of sin. When we went through the end of Romans chapter 1 and that list of sins that the nations of the world commit openly, freely, that they boast in themselves and that they boast in others when they do them, did it ever strike you as incredible that God puts disobedience to parents in the same category as murder, evil-mindedness, and sexual immorality? Why do you think that is? Because it's sin and God hates all of it in any form. His wrath is fully engaged against sin and he will deal with all sin. None of it, mark this, none of it will go unpunished. That's important not only for the unconverted person to hear, but brothers and sisters, we in the church need to hear that too. Those who are converted we need to hear this because we often tinker with sin in our lives, don't we? What does the scripture say? 2 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. You are the temple of the living God, brothers and sisters. God is holy. He dwells in you. Therefore, come out from among them and be clean. Be holy as the Lord is holy. That's the commandment. Do you think God is serious about sin? You better believe it. That's why back to Romans 5, verse 16, the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. God is perfectly just and right to bring condemnation for even one sin. That's what we have to understand. And if the story ended there, there would be no good news for mankind. There would be no gospel. But the good news is that God is also a God of grace, mercy, loving kindness, compassion. He is a Savior by nature. That is also part of His glory, His attributes that He has revealed to us in His Word. His goodness is not bound up only in the fact that He is a good judge and He does what is right. If he did what was right, we would deserve, all of us, death, and that would be a right judgment. But he is also merciful, kind, loving, wanting to forgive. Listen to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Praise the Lord. There is hope for all of us. The person who is the worst sinner in this world, this is interesting because Paul at the end of his ministry felt like he was the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners. But if you look at the person who would think themselves the worst sinner and beyond the grace of God, unable to be forgiven, God's grace covers all our sins. He reaches the sinner that is farthest gone and there is hope for that man, woman, child. You think back to Adam and Eve. After they sinned, he brought death upon them spiritually, right? Immediately. That was the consequence of their disobedience. But you notice that he didn't kill them physically right away, did he? Why? Why did he allow them to live for some period of time after that? Did not the Lord teach them with the first sacrifice of an innocent animal to clothe them with the skins of that animal that there was hope and a future sacrifice yet to come that would cover all their sins? That's right. He was teaching them his attributes of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And I believe that Adam was, was saved. I mean, you, you look at the genealogy of Christ and that list of the saints of God, Adam's in that list. Because God is a Savior, he provides us the free gift of Jesus' righteousness. He provides us this gift, and it applies not only to one of our sins or some of our sins, but to all of our sins. We've got to wrap our heads around this, brothers and sisters, how significant this truth is. I mean, if one sin is enough to condemn a man to an eternity of hell, what is a multiplicity of sins that we can't even count for number? How great is it that the Lord would forgive all our offenses which we can never heal on our own. 
You see, that's why he sent his son. Isaiah, again, chapter 59, verse 16, he saw, the Lord saw, that there was no man. And he wondered that there was no intercessor, no man to stand between men and God. Why? Because the first intercessor, if you will, the first representative of mankind had fallen, was unclean, was unable to save himself. And so he wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. Who is this salvation of God that the Lord brings by the strength of his own arm that has his own righteousness? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whom God the Father sends to deal with our sin and with his own wrath against sin, our sin. Christ was born sinless. He lived a life of perfect obedience. And then God puts him on the cross to pay for sin, not his own, because he had none of his own, but for our sins, he was wounded. For our transgressions, he was punished. Each offense punishable by an eternity of hell, and in some, all of that came upon him as the full cup of wrath of God that was poured out, and Christ willingly drank it to the last drop. And then God raised him the third day to show that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice. Do you think God is serious about sin? Look at the cross. Look at the cross and you see the severity of God against sin, but you also see the mercy and compassion of God to forgive sin. If God, who would not even spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God, if God wouldn't spare his own son, that tells you, brother and sister, there was no other way for our sin to be dealt with. We certainly can't save ourselves. We can't heal our own wounds. There's only two ways that sin can be punished. Either you will bear your own sin, and that's called hell, an eternity of suffering, conscious torment for your own sin. Or your sin was placed on Christ and punished in full. And you now have no more condemnation. You've been transferred from the headship of Adam to the headship of Christ, where all you have is justification and life and blessing. That's the contrast Paul wants us to understand. Hmm. So Christ's gift is far greater than the result of Adam's offense. How? In its application. It's much wider. It covers all our offenses versus the condemnation of God, which is drawn on just one offense of Adam. But there's something else that Paul wants us to see here in this verse. Look again at verse 16. And think about this idea of forensic legal language. For the judgment which comes, which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So here we have these three words, judgment, condemnation, justification, all legal language. And Paul wants us to see something else important here. The gift of Christ is far greater than the result of Adam's offense because it also reverses the judge's verdict. It reverses the judge's verdict from condemned to justified. Condemned to justified. Adam's one offense condemned all whom he represents, all the earthborn, 
Christ's gift of righteousness justifies all whom he represents, all the heaven-born, the new humanity. And these are opposites, condemnation, justification. Condemnation is a legal verdict of guilt, guilty. That's the pronouncement, the sentence of the judge. Justification is a legal verdict not just of not guilty, this is so important, not just of not guilty, but of justified, righteous. Justification is a verdict of righteous. What does that mean? Jesus' righteousness does not simply change the legal legal verdict from guilty to innocent. Why is that important? Because that would simply restore us to the state that we had in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned, right? A state of innocence, but not a state of proven righteousness. Adam and Eve were in a probationary period to see if they would live a life of perfect righteousness and hit the bullseye, so to speak. They failed in that respect. Anyone would have failed. All of us would have failed in that respect. He was the perfect man. He was innocent, but he wasn't righteous. That was probationary. That's why when Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, we saw in our study that all have sinned at that one point in time when Adam sinned, and we lack the glory of God, which in that context is all about the righteousness of God. We fall short of that righteousness. We miss the mark with Adam. He missed the mark. We miss the mark. Righteousness was never achieved with Adam. It is achieved for the first and only time with Christ. Remember, the cross was a transaction. He didn't just forgive our sins. He didn't just put our sins away from himself as far as the east is from the west. He did that. Praise the Lord. There's more. There was a reconciliation that happened. Remember when we looked at verses 5 and 10, or excuse me, um, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 5? Paul speaks of a reconciliation, which means an exchange. What is that exchange? For he, God, made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's the exchange? Jesus takes our sin, we get his righteousness in exchange. So we're not only restored to a state of innocence, but he actually gives us, counts us as having the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means when God looks at you, he looks at you as if, not only as if you had never sinned, but as if you had lived the perfect life that Jesus himself lived. Do you see how significant that is? He views you as totally righteous, as upright in your standing before him, as fully accepted. You could think about it this way. Justified people are not still criminals who have simply had our parole met so we can now go and live our old lives again. We're not just criminals who have had parole met, so we can go back to our old lives. The old life is over, and the new life has begun. We've been born again. We have been adopted into the family of God. We are now members of the king's family. And so what does he do? He dresses us with his own robes of righteousness. The old robes of our supposed righteousness, which in his view were just filthy rags, those, those got tossed, those got burned up, burned up. The robes that we now wear are the robes of his son, his righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is why God's grace abounds. 
toward us in verse 15 abounds. The grace of God and the gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, it abounds. It overflows toward us. We're not just forgiven, but we're positively righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be in Christ, to have him as our new head representing us before God. In Adam, we received his sin, his condemnation, his death. That's the imputation of Adam toward us. But imputation works wonderfully in Christ. In him, we have righteousness, his righteousness, his justification, his life. Jesus' gift reversed the judge's verdict from condemnation to justification. And since God has given us this standing by his own doing, we can never, ever lose it. We can never fall out of this grace in which we stand. Yes, again, we can, we can fall within this state of grace, meaning we sin. We sin, and when we sin, like a righteous person, we get up again because God is the one who is lifting us up. He is the one who is carrying us. This is the perseverance of the saints. If you belong to him, if you are in Christ, you will persevere to the end, though you sin. But note this, the practice of your life is no longer sinning as it was before. The affection of your heart is no longer toward your own sin as it was before, right? The affection of our hearts has been changed now so that we now love righteousness and we despise our own sin as God hates our sin. You see, the views are now aligning for us in Christ. The disparity that was there before, he is reconciling. That's what it means to confess our sins. That word confess is the word homo logeo in the Greek. It's to say the same thing as. God says, you're guilty on this offense, this particular issue. That's wrong. It's sin. He prompts us by his spirit so that we confess. We say the same word. Lord, I see it like you're seeing it. And I repent. I turn from that. That is what marks Christians, brothers and sisters. A pattern, a new life of repentance and a pursuit of holiness and an actual striving and and an achievement by the Spirit of God of more and more holiness over time. We're going to look at that, especially as we get into Romans chapter 6. It's the Spirit of God, the actual resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead. That's what's at work in all of us so that we do walk in holiness because our God is holy. Hmm. Some people ask this question, how can a good God, a good judge, reverse a verdict without compromising his justice? How can he just reverse his verdict from condemned to justified and still retain his own righteousness as a good judge? And the answer to that, of course, is because all those sins have been paid in full, not by you, but by Christ. He laid them on the shoulders of the Messiah and they were paid in full. That's how God is able to be both the justifier, excuse me, just, and the justifier of the one who trusts in Jesus. He maintains his integrity perfectly while also showing his mercy because every sin is accounted for. Every sin is accounted for. So, here's the fundamental comparison of verse 16. Christ's gift is far greater than the result of Adam's one offense. Why? Because it applies much more broadly to cover all our offenses, and it reverses the judge's verdict from guilty to righteous while maintaining his integrity. And now that the legal issue is settled, 
and we've been transferred from Adam's headship to Christ's headship, the reign of death in Adam is now ended for us. And it becomes a reign of life, a reign of abundant life in Christ. That is verse 17, and that is what I hope to look at with you next time, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, your word is piercing. It is searching. Lord, you know how to separate the thoughts and intents of a man's heart. Father, it is you with whom all of us have to do. Father, we have so many opinions that we have regard for in this life because we are earthly creatures. We're constantly looking for and listening to the voices of this earth, but there is one voice and one opinion that matters, and it is yours. And so, Father, we want to know how it is that you view us, how you view sin, that we might understand the glory of this last Adam, Jesus Christ, and the work that he did to reverse this curse that Adam brought on all humanity, to see the wonder of how you are saving us now, causing us to walk in your way in this newness of life by the Spirit of God leading us, convicting us of sin, causing us to confess and repent our sin constantly as a pattern of life. And Lord, that the desires of our heart are now to please you. And so we ask, Lord, in that spirit, search our hearts, search our minds, see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Not for our sake, Lord, but for yours. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. This local expression here at Creekside, we are here for your glory, Lord. Use us. Change us that we might be better image bearers of God in this community in Eagle. That those who see us would not see us, but would see the grace of Christ in us. And that they too would be converted and would join the worship session with us as we fall down before you, our God and King. Lord, thank you for changing our hearts. Thank you for changing our affections so that we no longer find satisfaction in living for ourselves. We only find it living for you. Help each one to do that here. For your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.